0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wildscast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a Lunch and Learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. This is the first in a two-part series on belief versus trust. We'll ask questions like, what are the reasons for believing and trusting in a power beyond ourselves? And when do we believe in ourselves rather than place our faith in God? So, without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds.
1: most assume that the belief in God is totally dependent on faith, right? You, You meet some people in life who just have a lot of faith. They believe in God and other people are more cynical, they're more scientific and they don't believe in God. And that in order to believe in God, you just have to sort of suspend your rational thought processes, close your eyes and just believe away. What we usually call blind faith. Now that might be true of other religions, but it is not true of Judaism. The great Jewish philosopher Maimonides wrote that the Torah requires one not only to believe in God, but to, he says, know that there is a God. Now, how can you know that there's a God? I, I can't point to God. I can't experience God with any of the five senses. And although most scholars do not believe that God's existence can be proved scientifically, I think that there are two ways of accessing a belief in God and trying to develop faith and trust in God so that it could actually be comforting during a period of corona, which is what we're going to speak about today and tomorrow, please God. (laughs) Um, My goal is not to prove God's existence, but to show that it is a rational thing to believe in God, and then to be able to access that belief, to be able to have some trust. Because let's face it, if this one thing corona has taught us And that is, we're not running the show. There's some other force. There's a tiny virus that we can't even see that is literally wreaking havoc on the world. And if we don't learn to place our faith in something other than ourselves, we're gonna walk around like crazy people. Because as much as we're listening to the scientists and the doctors, and I tell everybody, please listen to the scientists and doctors, The scientists and the doctors don't know everything, and nobody likes to hear that, because in our Western society, we have been taught again and again to trust certain people. I grew up in a home where doctors were extraordinarily revered, right? My family is a family of lawyers, and we respect lawyers, but doctors? I wouldn't say we worship the the ground that they walk on. A guy walks in with a white coat on, he gets automatic respect, because that's kind of the Western world. We look up to scientists, and we should, Judaism values science and literature, but there's something above. And the greatest doctors, the greatest scientists, Einstein amongst them, believed that there was a force greater than them. And as Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman put it, it is only scientific to say what is more likely and less likely. It is is only scientific to say what is more likely and less likely. Nobody knows any of this 100% for sure. The perception that a rational being should only believe in what is definitively proven is simply false. Great physicist and mathematician, Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington once remarked, listen to this line, Jill, you're gonna love this. Proof is an idol before whom the pure mathematician tortures himself. In physics, we are generally content to sacrifice before the lesser shrine of plausibility. You hear what he says? In physics, we are generally content to sacrifice before the lesser shrine of plausibility. Even in the world of mathematics and science, and I'm not a mathematician, I'm not a scientist, but I read a lot. And in those worlds, in order to prove something, you're not proving anything 100%. And the world that I do know a little more about is the field of law. Who can tell anyone here listening to this? And I'm so glad everybody got back on. This is such an important class, and thank you all for joining. Who knows what the highest standard of proof is? convict someone of a crime and not just any crime a capital crime which you could your your life could be taken in texas they still have the uh, death penalty in certain states in this country you have to prove that the defendant let's say committed murder one which is like the you know hate most the the worst possible crime in this country you have to prove it 100% no of course not you have to prove it beyond reasonable doubt now it's not easy to prove something beyond reasonable doubt, but why don't why doesn't the courts why don't the American courts require the prosecution to prove one hundred percent that this person killed another person? We're, we're going to give this guy the chair or the needle, however they execute people today, based on something that's less than one hundred percent. And the answer is yes, because one hundred percent doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in the world of science. It doesn't exist in the world of mathematics. And for some reason, we expect it to exist in the world of God. Judaism and religion. And my goal, therefore, is not to establish a definitive, irrefutable proof of God's existence, but to say that we have a reasonable basis for believing in Hashem and then what we have what's called emuna, We have faith that fills in the gap and I will prove it to you that we make every decision in life like this. Uh, take the last decision that you've made in your life, a really important decision. What profession should you enter? Or should I continue to date this guy? Or should I continue you know, to court this young woman and actually ask her for her hand in marriage? I was, had the honor yesterday of performing a wedding. Um, Wanna wish a mazel tov to Noah and Natasha. It was a beautiful wedding, corona, safe wedding. Um, and how do you know? I mean, did Noah 100% know and Natasha 100%? They had no questions about each other. And they came pretty close. They really are in love and it's beautiful. But everyone's got stuff. Everyone has questions. And what you do is you create, you start with a reasonable basis and then you have the Amun. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to start with a reasonable basis and then we're going to fill in the gap because there's always a gap. There's always a gap when you are trying to convict somebody of a crime. There's a gap with a mathematician, a physicist and there's a gap as to whether you believe in God or whether or not you should take that job as opposed to the other job should I go study Torah in Israel or get a master's degree in, I don't know why, to get my MBA now? Right? You're going to do a cost-benefit analysis based on reason and rationality. That's going to leave you over here and you're going to have to still jump a little. And your ability to jump is going to make the difference between whether or not you're going to stay the same in your life or you're going to grow. Because if you can't jump a little, you're never going to be able to grow but nobody said that the jump should be over such a wide chasm that you will fall in. And that's why, and, and I'm, many of you know me, I, 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 I'm, I'm by nature skeptical, and I need a reasonable rational basis to believe in things. So I think there are two ways of coming to a belief in Hashem and ultimately trusting Hashem. Number one, I call it from within, and the other one is from without. I wanna start with with without, and tomorrow we'll look in a little more from within. Believing in God from without refers to ways of arriving in a belief in God by looking at more objective external factors, which indicate the existence of a supernatural creator. Believing in a God from within refers to coming to the belief in God by looking inside and accessing that which the Kabbalah teaches us already exists within us, metaphysically and spiritually. And let me just tell you, there are books and books. I'm studying the Balhatanya right now with... One of my sons that whole book is about accessing something you already have within you um but that doesn't work for everyone sometimes we have to look externally and both are avenues worth exploring and both serve as ways that jewish tradition teaches us we can believe develop a belief and an attachment because i am not satisfied with simply a belief in god Okay, great, you believe. How's that helping you deal with corona? How's that helping you deal with the fact that your social life is on hold or you just lost your job or God forbid somebody got sick in your family? This is very, very important. Our belief in Hashem is everything. It revolves, I mean, I asked Yossi Klein Halevi. we were talking about the Palestinian-Israeli situation and I, I stopped in the middle and I said, tell me how your connection to God fits into this. And he said to me, How does my connection to God not fit into anything? My entire life revolves around my relationship with Hashem. So much hinges on this. So I want to share with you two approaches to belief in God from without, and then I want to share with you some belief, some approaches within, and then something that I've learned about what's called bitachon. Bitachon means trust. Because once you believe in God, the trick is, and this is the part that I personally struggle with, because I believe deeply in a supernatural creator, um, I have my whole life, but I've struggled with it at certain points. When I was about 18, 19, 20, I spent a couple of years there just asking myself these questions and speaking with mathematicians and scientists and you know, Orthodox Jews who were rationalists. But then it comes to a point in life when you say, how much trust do you place in Hashem? And when you're standing up and you know that game where you just let yourself go back and you take your friend and you have him stand behind you and you just close your eyes and I'm just gonna trust. And that is not easy. And we're gonna talk about that as well. So let's begin with my favorite two approaches to um, a belief in God externally. And the first one is what we call the teleological approach. And I've been working on this with my son, Ezra, not the son I'm learning the Tanya with. This is more, my more rationally oriented son. So he's more helpful to me on this. But the teleological approach comes from the Greek word telos, T-E-L-O-S, which means end or purpose, which posits that you could come to the belief in God by observing the orderly and sophisticated design of the universe, what I like to call seeing God behind creation. And uh, something happened in 1953. James Watson and Francis Crick, excuse me, famously um, discovered DNA, which is a chain of chemicals found in every human cell. And Crick and Watson proved that DNA contains an exact blueprint of the body's every physical detail, our fingerprints, the size and the shape of our heart, the color of our eyes, everything. And a wonderful book that you can get that has some of this material in it, Lawrence Kellman wrote a book called Permission to Believe. And he writes that this discovery of DNA is all the more fascinating and really revealing of a God in the computer age. Because DNA surpasses the storage efficiency of any modern day computer. In fact, if we were to electronically store the incredible amount of information found in a single strip of DNA, it would take trillions of computer bytes. And somehow, if you remember this from your ninth grade science class, DNA crams all of this information into this tiny double helix molecule which is the equivalent of about 375 million computer bytes. Very famous Australian microbiologist Michael Denton wrote that quote and I I quote this, the capacity of DNA to store information vastly exceeds that of any other known human system. It is so efficient that all the information needed to specify an organism as complex as a human being weighs less than a few thousand of a gram. The information necessary to store the design of all the species of organism which, uh, which have ever existed on the planet could be held in a teaspoon. And there would still be room left enough for all the information ever written in any book. Now that's just DNA. Every part of the human body that's coded into that DNA strip is so sophisticated. I remember when I was younger, I had problems with my eyes. I was actually legally blind and I had strip business. I had lazy eye in my left eye. I spent a lot of my childhood in and out of the ophthalmologist's office. And during this time and thereafter, I became fascinated with the eye. And it's unbelievable I could literally spend the next hour talking to you about the human eye because I did a lot of work on it. And as Kellerman describes, the human eye contains seven million cone-shaped color sensors that bring us extraordinary detail over a huge range of lighting conditions. And what happens when there's not enough light? The cone-shaped sensors deactivate themselves and 120 million ultra-sensitive rod-shaped black and white sensors then kick in. Another computer in the optic nerve accepts these signals from 127 million sensors, recodes them into more compact signals and shoots them down a few hundred thousand nerve fibers, leading to our brain at about a billion impulses per second. And while all this is going on, the pupil, remember that part? The pupil is just a hole. It looks just like it's black, but it's literally a hole in the eye and it's just like a camera that opens up automatically to let more light in when you're in a darker room and it closes when it doesn't need as much light when you're, let's say, outside. And you've got this sort of stereo focus system adjusting focal lengths to maximize image sharpness and a sophisticated image enhancer, which is clarifying tiny blurs in our vision, which are caused by motion or darkness. And Kellerman writes that besides these video units mounted on both sides of our skull, we have equally complex devices for detecting sounds, smells, and tastes. Virtually every square centimeter of the human body is packed with pressure and temperature sensors. I'm sitting in this room right now, it's a little warm here. I'm starting to schwitz a little because I'm getting excited about what I'm teaching and it's hot. Balance detectors are found on both sides of our head so we can retain our orientation to the Earth's surface and not get dizzy. We've got an immune system instantly detecting and responding to viral and bacterial intruders. How many people, Baruch Hashem, thank God, were able to fight off Corona because they had the antibodies? They didn't do anything. A lot of them didn't take really any medicine at all. Happening, they had Baruch Hashem. Thankfully, the immune system to fight it. We've got the respiratory and circulatory systems within us that maintain that perfect oxygen carbon dioxide balance. And our digestive system removes and restores valuable proteins, carbohydrates, and fats from foods, separating, excreting compounds the body cannot use. That's why we make a bracha when we come out of the bathroom because we realized that even though we just went to the bathroom and we talk about it in such gross terms, it was an unbelievable sophisticated apparatus that enabled our bodies to get rid of the harmful and toxic parts of what we consume and hold on to what we need. We've got these bones that fit into this ball and socket system that provide us with the fluidity, allowing us to move with ease with our tendons and our ligaments and our skin is the glue that binds this whole thing together. And at the same time as all of this is going on, the brain and its network of more than a million, billion neural connections reach out and supervise this whole operation. And all we're talking about here is the human body. And Lawrence Kellerman says, all this begs the obvious question, because we're only talking about the body here. We haven't even spoken about plant life, and fish life, and birds. We haven't even spoken. I mean, I don't know how many of you have heard more birds chirping over the last few weeks. You go to Central Park, or you just open up your window and you'll hear birds tripping because there are less people out, there's less traffic, there's less noise, man-made noise. We haven't even spoken of the immensely sophisticated physical design of the Earth, the solar system, the galaxies, the more we look into the universe, into the human anatomy, the more precision that we see. And the question that is obviously is begged here is what is behind all of this? And I happen to believe in what the scientists teach today that the world perhaps, because nobody knows for sure, but the prevailing theory is that the world exploded into existence at some point. But the question is, how did that happen? Who was behind that? The Big Bang Theory. You know, Kellerman says that if you want to calculate the odds that the simplest life form, which is a bacteria, could have randomly been created, you'd have to take the probability, I'm reading from his book here, of assembling one enzyme and multiplying that number by itself 2,000 times, which is 1 in 10 to the 39,950th power. I don't even know what that means, what that word looks like, but it's characterized beautifully in this following qu- quote from Nobel laureate, Hoyle, who in 1981 said, it's more likely that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 than a single bacteria could have evolved randomly over a billion of year, billions of years. And that is a single bacteria. The probability of a virus or a fungus randomly evolving and then a human being, it's almost comical. There are 25,000 operating enzymes in a human being. The probability of 25,000 enzymes forming spontaneously once in a billion years is, he says, about the same as closing your eyes, sticking your hand into a huge mound of black marbles, trillions of times the size of the universe, and pulling out the one red marble on the first try. And by the way, that's not to mention assembling those enzymes into skin, bones, muscles, ears, your nose, your eyes, or into a single strip of human DNA. We can go on and on. Francis Crick of Cambridge University, who I mentioned before, was a Nobel Prize recipient for his DNA research wrote, quote, no matter how large the environment one considers, life could not have had a random beginning. Troops of monkeys thundering away at random on typewriters could not produce the works of Shakespeare for the practical reason that the whole observable universe is not large enough to contain the monkey hordes, the necessary typewriters, and certainly the waste waste paper baskets necessary for the deposition of wrong attempts. The same they said is true for living material. And that's a famous story it's attributed to the Rambam, some attributed to other rabbis, but it doesn't really matter whether it's true or not. It makes the point very, very powerfully. So they said that the Rambam was once having a debate with an atheist. Maimonides, a great Jewish philosopher, and he asked his colleague that he was debating to step out of the room for a moment. And the atheist walks back into the room, and the Rambam hands the atheist this piece of paper, and it had a beautiful poem on it. And the Rambam says something unbelievable happened when you left. The ink uh, well over there on my desk spilled on the floor. There happened to be a piece of paper on the floor next to the ink well. And the ink just spilled on this piece of paper and it formed this this poem. And of course the atheist looks at the poem and says, that's impossible. This poem can't be the result of an ink spill. It has rhyme, reason, and carefully composed phrases. It must have an author. And the Rambam famously responded, let your ears hear what your mouth has said. The world has rhyme, reason, and pattern. Surely it too is the result of a Creator. You know, our, our family went up to Hunter Mountain for about a month. We rented a place up there, we got a great deal. And I realized that one of the things that I really appreciated about getting out of the city, and not simply during this corona, is that I was exposed to a lot more nature. I think it's harder to believe in God and to have God in your life when there's less nature around you. When I I, I saw deer every day, I saw these little, um, not raccoons, little chipmunks and little, I don't know. And you just hear the, you're just constantly reminded of the beauty of the natural world. And you look at the world and you look at the sophisticated design of the human being and of the, of the galaxies and the solar system and the intricacies and how sophisticated we have been created. I remember one of my teachers, Rabbi Tendler, he should live and be well. He's a biologist and a great rabbi at Yeshiva University. And he said, how many things have to go right? in the human body for us to continue to be healthy. So many things could go wrong, God forbid. One little thing gets off. We say this in the Ashriyatsar prayer, that God created us with openings and with cavities, and if the openings were to close and the cavities were to open, forget it, the whole thing's over. Life is so intricate and so precious, and it begs the obvious question of who was behind all of this. And this is one of those, I think, ways of accessing a belief. And when you're struggling, is there a God? And I know a lot of people don't struggle whether there's a God or not, but if there's a God, then how come God is not coming in? Obviously a very legitimate question, not my question right now. But to know that there's a God, and every time you question, look around. Either look at yourself or look at the natural world And that's why it's good to get out of the city in this concrete jungle in which we live here in Manhattan. Back in the city, as you can see. And the city is great, and look at what we've built here. But sometimes we build so much in our urban centers that it almost obscures God because the world of nature is kind of put behind the scenes. And we just look at skyscrapers and subways, and we forget about the trees and about the grass and about all the things that God continues to to, to to thrive, that are reminders of Hashem in this beautiful world. So it's good to get out of the city. Now, perhaps even more powerful than the teleological approach, if anybody has any questions or comments. Um, Jeff Koblenz, I don't have a source sheet that I posted, so don't worry. Um, I I actually believe that there's a more powerful um, basis for our existence, for the belief, for, for the existence of God. And that is Jewish history. Now, it's my favorite story because it's the story of our people. And maybe you can explain each of these little episodes in our history without believing in God But I think if you pull the lens back and you look at the totality of Jewish history, of our continued existence against all odds, I don't know how you can explain you and me having this conversation. All right, it's not much of a dialogue, I'm doing most of the talking here, but how we could still be after all is said and done. When, if you don't believe in something that is somehow orchestrating all this behind the scenes. Let's start at the very beginning. We know that the Jewish people, we started as a slave people. And uh, um, we were not the only minority group to be enslaved along the ancient Nile. And we served the Egyptian pharaohs and we built them the great pyramids and the ancient cities of Pitom and Ramses. You can go to the Museum of Natural History when it opens up, please God, soon. And you can see Ramses, and the Jews were not the only ones that worked for the Egyptians. Tens of thousands of Jews died, but unlike other periods, uh, peoples excuse me, that were enslaved by the ancient Egyptians, the Jews somehow managed to escape into the Sinai Desert sometime around the year 1300 BCE. And we proceeded throughout the desert, attacked by warring tribes, but eventually we arrived in our promised land. And after a series of battles in the land of Israel, and you can read about this in the Bible, in the book of Joshua, the Jews were able to finally live in peace in the land, building themselves a temple under the great and wise leader, Solomon, who built our first temple for us. But neighboring countries like the Assyrians attacked, we held out, but until in the year 586 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, after having defeated both the Assyrian and Egyptian armies, swept into Israel, destroyed our temple, murdering women and children, deporting their survivors to Babylon. And honestly, that should have been the end of Jewish history. Jewish history should have ended at that point, with the remaining Jewish minority assimilating into Babylonian culture, which is what's happened over the centuries with many minority groups living in majority cultures. But there were Jews who retained their distinct identity, and when the Persian Empire toppled the Babylonian, the new Persian leader Cyrus the Great allowed the Jews to return to Israel and rebuild their temple. There were approximately 42,000 Jews who returned to Israel, and 70 years after the destruction of the first temple, the Jews rebuilt their temple, returned to Israel, becoming the first people to regain a land that they had lost more than a half a century earlier. Jewish history marches on. The, the Greeks under Alexander the Great defeated the Persians, and now they ruled over the Jews in ancient Israel. They outlawed the practice of Judaism, they converted our temple into a place of idol worship, and you know the story because you celebrate Hanukkah. The Jews under their own Hasmonean kingdom or the Maccabees successfully revolt against the Greeks, becoming the only minority group ever to expel the Greeks from their land, from Jerusalem. As Greece withdrew, Rome quietly expanded its empire, and in 40 BCE, after having replaced Greece as the world power, Rome dispatches an army of 30,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, to conquer Jerusalem and to take it from the Jews. There were rebellions against the Romans, but they were all suppressed. Thousands were killed. The Jewish temple was razed to the ground. And once again, their survivors fled into the diaspora. And I'm giving you broad strokes. For the next almost 100 years, Jews continued to fight against the Romans. The Bar Kokhva revolt, was we talked about this last week, was one of the greatest revolts ever. But essentially, we were exiled. And in the diaspora, The Jew, no longer in his land, near his temple, was now more vulnerable than ever. And over the last 2,000 years, what followed were centuries of Christian Crusades, a Spanish Inquisition, Cossacks, pogroms, state-sponsored anti-Semitism in the former Soviet Union, and all around the world, and finally, the Holocaust. And once again, for all intents purposes, this should have been the last chapter of the Jews. But it wasn't. Because in 1948, for the first time in recorded human history, a people twice exiled from their land returned to establish an independent state. On May 14th, in 1948, the State of Israel was created. And you know what happened the very next day? We talked about this on Yom Atzmod a few weeks ago. The next day, as Jews were dancing in the streets, forgetting a tiny little sliver of Israel from the General Assembly, who voted in favor of partition in the United Nations, we were dancing the horror. We were like, we got something. Three years after Auschwitz. The next day, five Arab armies descended on this ragged band of Holocaust survivors, and fewer than 45,000 Jews faced the combined military forces of Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, and Lebanon. The Secretary General of the Arab League proclaimed over the airways, this will be a war of extermination and a momentous massacre, and we held out for an entire month after the war broke out until the United Nations declared a ceasefire and the Jews had a state. Now, I'm gonna leave the biggest miracle for later on in this week, because Yom Yerushalayim is Thursday night, Friday, and I'm gonna be devoting my talk on Thursday and some on Friday to talk about a little about what happened during the Six-Day War and some very important spiritual aspects. I wanna thank Rabbi Shmuley Zema who spoke beautifully about Yerushalayim yesterday on our Lunch and Learn. But if you can't believe that somehow there was this God, some kind of supernatural force that is watching over the Jewish people, specifically over the land of Israel, How do you explain the continued existence of the Jewish people? In 1892, the great American writer and poet Mark Twain wrote, and I'm not going to read the whole quote. It's a very, very famous quote. You can get it and Google it for yourself. And he talks about how the Babylonians and the Persians and the Romans and the Greeks all filled the world with splendor and dream stuff. Nobody wrote like Twain. But they have somehow all faded away and vashed and vanished into the dustpins of history. But somehow the Jew remained. And you know, we could probably, you know, if we consulted enough historians and we read enough books, we could probably explain each and every little episode. The Jew survived this because of that. The Jew survived this because of that. I don't know how you would do it with the Six-Day War. I don't know. And talk to people who fought in the Six-Day War who are still alive, and they will tell you whether they were observant Jews, they're not observant Jews, they're religious, they're not that something else was fighting along with them in those days. But how do you explain the continued existence of the Jewish people against all odds without believing in God? I had this conversation with my friend, Michael Steinhardt, an amazing Jewish philanthropist who started Birthright Israel. And he claims not to believe in God, and his wife always says, "Eh." (laughs) he likes to do that to ruffle people's feathers, particularly rabbis. And I said, Michael, explain to me how you can understand our existence here. And he said, well, we have a great educational motif. We believe in education. I said, come on, Michael. We're not the only ones who believe in education. Asian cultures and peoples are uh, believe in education, are steeped in great scholarship also. They are ancient civilizations as well. How is it that we're the only minority, tiny people that can somehow survive against all odds? The Dalai Lama came and convened a group of rabbis and Jewish leaders to find out how they could live as, as in Tibet as a minority living amongst the majority culture and not either be completely wiped out or assimilated, because that's necessarily what has happened to every other minority group that has lived amongst the majority culture. At some point, they're either physically annihilated or, or culturally assimilated. Now, the Jew has come extraordinarily close to both of those, but neither has happened. And how do you explain it? And if I could be as so bold as to offer an answer to Mark Twain's excellent question, what is the secret to our immortality? We never for a minute imagine that our continued existence against all odds is some sort of coincidence, a fluke of history. How does tiny Israel continue to endure with so many powerful enemies on her borders? You don't need to be a religious person to see that something beyond us is making sure we continue to exist And I read you the verse last week when I had the class about the chosen people. God says to his nation, Vitem li amsegula, you will be an amsegula, you will be a treasured nation if you guard my covenant. God needs us. He wants us to be his partners in bringing the message of ethical monotheism to the rest of the world. And as long as we continue to do that, God will keep us. But something else emerges when we study our history. The simple fact that so many people want to take us out. So many people, so many individuals of nations have tried to continue to stop us from simply being. And it makes you wonder, what is it about us that they want to suppress? What is it that some of the nations of the world in every generation cannot allow us to reveal? There's actually a very prominent thinker who once said, you can tell how great a people are by how much and how much of people are capable of contributing by how much people try to destroy them. And by those estimates, we're way up there. And I think we can learn something about ourselves from our enemies, that we may have something extraordinarily valuable to give to the world. Ideas and ways of living that subconsciously even, our enemies have picked up on, and for whatever reason cannot allow us to reveal. Basic truths of life, that it appears the Almighty Himself has an interest in having the rest of the world experience. And I believe, therefore, that Hashem watches over us to ensure that His values of ethical monotheism, the very purpose of creation, happens. And of course, the same goes for Israel and Yerushalayim, which continues to be the most fought over and contested city in the world. There must be something special about Jerusalem that everybody wants a piece of it. So rather than viewing our past in negative terms and focusing on all those who would want to bring about our destruction, let's take a look at a moment for what everyone else wants and let's learn to cherish and value that. But going back to our discussion of why it makes so much sense to believe in something greater than ourselves, When I spoke about in terms of being faith from without, whether you look at the human anatomy, you look at biology, you look at chemistry, you look at physics, you look at the world, whatever it is that inspires you to believe in something beyond yourself. Jewish history does it for me. Maybe human biology does it for you. But there's another aspect. And that is something that exists within us something very very special and powerful that exists within each and every one of us that we can access and that we can learn to have a little faith and trust in and i'm going to save some of this for tomorrow when we delve into the other aspect today we focused on how we could find god beyond us when you start imagining that there must be no God because all heck is broken loose in the world, or how could a benevolent God allow innocent and good people to die? Very legitimate question. None of that takes away as to whether or not there is a God. And I struggled with this for years. When my mother of blessed memory contracted cancer, and I watched her suffer and pass away from this, very, very painful. And I couldn't touch the subject of what's called in Hebrew Tzadik varala why bad things happen to good people. Because to me, my mother was the greatest person I knew, just in terms of her values, her sweetness, her caring. And it took me a long time to come to terms. And I believe this intellectually, and I'm not saying that Emotionally, this is going to resonate. But that legitimate question of how God has the power to save good people from suffering and somehow doesn't, like what happened in the Holocaust. And that same God that I believe intervened in the creation of the State of Israel and sort of reintroduced himself as an active participant in history, why does God hide his face at some times and God show his face at others? And we've seen both in our own generation collectively as a nation. And I'm sure you as a person, as an individual, have seen both in your own lifetime. Times when you feel Hashem is smiling at you, when he's shining his beautiful countenance upon you. And Burkat Kohanim, the priestly blessing, they come on and they say, Hashem vishmech, may God bless you. May God shine his countenance upon you. May Hashem turn to you and look at you and smile upon you. And those moments in our lives when we feel Hashem is truly smiling at us. And then we have those moments when we feel God has just abandoned us. He's just nowhere to be found. These are all, of course, from a human perspective. God is always there. And God is also there in the worst and the most difficult times. Rabbi Salvechik wrote that when his wife, who he was deeply in love with, when she became sick and he spent every day at the hospital with her, he wrote, and I can't do justice to the way he articulated this, that he could not find God in those whitewashed walls those sterile whitewashed walls of the hospital. But when he came home at night and he prayed to God, he could, so to speak, feel God's hand upon his shoulder and that God continued to be with him even as he suffered. And this is the age old question that we believe even Moses asked. Where is God when bad things are happening to good people? we'll talk a little more about this more, because Moshe didn't even get an answer 100%. He got a partial answer when he said to God, Harini k'vodecha, show me your glory, and Hashem said, lo Urani adam v'chai, it's impossible for a person to see me and to live. I think so many of us believe that there is a God, but it's so hard to believe in that God when bad things happen, and then we imagine he doesn't exist. Because we don't want to imagine a God that does exist, that has the power to change it, and doesn't. But that's not being intellectually honest. It's being emotionally true to your feelings. And that's legit, there's nothing wrong with that. But that does not remove the existence of the supernatural creator that allows for all of this sophisticated intricacy that we know exists in the the universe and in our bodies. And we know that Israel only continues to exist because God continues to watch over the lands of Israel, not to discount, God forbid, the IDF, the government and the great people of Israel that are also responsible for her existence, her continued existence against all odds. It's a partnership. But it's so difficult for us to imagine a God who truly is benevolent and caring and all-powerful that remains silent. And so we just don't want to deal with that. And we just say, he he must not exist. But we know deep down, we know intellectually he does. Because we can't explain all of this. Like Maimonides, the conversation with with the atheist. Of course he exists. It's just difficult for us to accept the existence of a God that allows bad to happen. And we have to somehow reconcile this. And Judaism, in a sense, is asking us to embrace paradoxical beliefs. That God is powerful, that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and benevolent, good. And sometimes he chooses to intervene positively for us, and sometimes he hides his face. I have no answer to that question. But that question does not remove the reality of Ein Udmil Vado as the Kabbalists teach that there is only God. And everything else flows from that one and belief in an only God. And that's why it's so important to be out in nature, to feel a little God and to study Jewish history, to come to the realization that you and I continuing to have this conversation in 2020 is nothing short of a miracle. That could not have happened without a God. The question is, how can we learn to trust more in that Hashem so that when we can't fix everything in the world and we can't be 100% certain of every decision that we're making in our life is the right decision. And we, we can get it up to 80%. We can do our little cost-benefit analysis. Is he the right guy? Is, he, is she the right girl? Is this the right job? Yes and no, but there's that little piece I don't know. To have trust that hashem wants the best for us and this is very difficult that all of those things that god hid is like all those terrible like they were all part of a master plan i don't know why my mother had to be taken at such a young age she was 56 and she never met any of my kids and how she could have been deprived of all of those years but I do believe, at least intellectually, it's part of a greater plan. It was necessary somehow for somehow the whole picture to come about, if anybody wants to read a book that delves into this a little more, it's the Ramchal, the great Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato and his Derech Hashem and his way of God. But we have to learn to trust a little more and to have more faith in Amun Ba Hashem because we can't answer all these questions ourselves and we don't have the solution or the vaccine every ailment or pandemic that afflicts us and it's almost like a reminder once in a while that we don't and, and that doesn't mean God for when we get these reminders that we should give up we have to make the world a better place and create cures and build hospitals and make the world a better place but we know when we cannot achieve perfection it's because we are not perfect and there is a God that is and that gap is so important where we have our imuna, where we have our faith, and we place our trust in Hashem, that if something happened after I put my best foot forward, it was meant to be. I'm jealous sometimes of people who could live like that, who can just say, you know what, I did everything I can. I I, I, I went to the interview, I put my best face on, I said the right thing, I did everything I can. It's meant to be, it's not meant to be. We're going to talk a little more about that tomorrow and ways of accessing Emunah and bitachon. Bitachon means trust and faith in Hashem. So it can actually practically help us in our lives. So we don't have to figure out everything out for ourselves. But we can have a little faith. And you want to know something? That's not being weak. Marx called that the opiate of the masses. Right? Smart, rationally being, you know, people figure out everything out for themselves. That's not being intellectually honest. We can't figure out everything for ourselves. Read Albert Einstein's memoirs. Read some of the great scientists who believed in god because they understood that we don't know everything and there's something beyond us and how could we place some of our faith in hashem and our purpose today was just to give you a couple of sources of belief from without the teleological approach the evidence of a god if you will from the physical sophisticated design and structure of the universe of our human anatomy and then of course of looking at Jewish history, and tomorrow, please, God, we will continue with some other avenues of belief and of trust. Um, Jeff Koblenz is writing that um, belief, our souls have an existence beyond the definitive life experience. College friend just lost his 52-year-old wife to a six-month fight with cancer last week. I'm sorry, Jeff. May her neshama have an aliyah. We cannot understand the infinite of Hashem, but we're gonna talk a little more about this tomorrow because a lot of what we said is looking outside. Tomorrow I wanna to take a look inside, metaphysically, and to see what already exists within us that already believes, but we're not necessarily tapping into and how we can tap into that. I wanna thank you all for joining. We're gonna continue this little mini-series tomorrow. I know this is heavy, heavy stuff. Thank you all for coming back online after our little glitch in the beginning. Have a wonderful day. Let me just see if there are any other comments uh, or questions. Amy, thank you for doing the internet connection. Okay, welcome. Eddie, as well, Okay, we'll talk about that as well. Chani, the world isn't finished yet. It's our responsibility to bring about Tikkun Olam. I'm going to be having a class about that as well. Chavos el Duties of the Heart, contends with these subjects. Another great book, if anybody wants to read, uh, is the first couple of chapters of, it's called Duties of the Heart. It's translated into English. Contends, is it everyone's purpose to find their their purpose in life. Okay, good. These are excellent points and questions, guys. Uh, All right, thank you all for joining. I'm sorry I kept you a little longer. It's a heavy topic. Have a wonderful day. Stay safe. Physically distance yourself. Continue to do what we need to do to get through this period of time. And look outside, look at nature, and keep believing. Have a great day, everyone.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.